See, he didn't give up on them. He didn't say, well, you did it. You committed this awful crime. You left me for other, for the golden calf. You left me for these idols. He kept pursuing. He kept pursuing. He kept pursuing them. He sent Amos. He sent Hosea. Hosea was the last one before the kingdom of Israel was destroyed. But God wanted to heal them. But they didn't want to be healed. It says that I would heal Israel, verse 1. The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. God needed to expose the evil deeds in order for that to happen. But they deal falsely. The thief enters in and the bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. We're going to see the failure of leadership because in verse 3, he, remember, he talks about this. The wickedness, with their wickedness, they make the king glad. It was so lawless in Israel at the time. And we read it, we've been reading it. And sometimes when we read this, it makes us very sad because we see people of God, we see people that have been redeemed by God behaving in this matter. How can the priest get into this stuff? How can the people of God get into this awful sin? How can they apostatize so bad? Well, we see it in our own lives. We see it in our own society. They make the king glad. In fact, the kings were actually happy that the people were like that because he could control them. He could control them. They're all adulterers. It says like an oven heated. Now, you've got to look back into the ancient times. This is how they used to cook the cakes. Don't think of a birthday cake. Don't think of a happy birthday cake or a wedding cake. Uh, it was actually like, a, like a, a pita bread. It's like a pita bread, and then you, you, like a pancake, there we go, like a pancake, and you had to cook it on both sides. And, uh, but they had to heat the oven. They got to heat the oven. And it says in verse 4, they're all adulterers like an oven heated by the baker. Now, you have to, God uses vivid images here in this chapter, in the next one too. You got to ask yourself, who's the baker? Who is the baker? Because the baker heats the oven, and the baker ceases to stir up the fire, from the kneading of the dough, the, 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 the oven gets so heated by the baker. Verse 5, on the day of our king, the princesses became sick with the heat of wine. Now keep thinking of the oven and the heat. He stretches out his hands with the scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all night, and in the morning it burns like flaming fire. So they knead the dough until it's leavened. Leavened. Is there spiritual leaven <laughs> in your life? What is leaven in the Bible? Sin. Who's the baker? I haven't answered that yet. In the day, on the day of our king, the leaders, the king was the baker. It's picturing the baker who heats up the oven, forgets about it, puts the dough in, lets it rise, right? As it normally would. But on the day, they became sick with the heat of the wine. Playing on the idea of oven. The oven gets so heated. Well, they were heated too. The heat of wine. They were like, remember it says in verse 4, adulterers. In verse 5, he stretches out his hand with the scoffers. Remember, the king loves this stuff. He's actually causing the sin to rise within the people. He loves the scoffer. The wickedness makes him glad. And from their hearts, their hearts are like an oven, as they said. And as they approach their plotting, 
their anger smolders all night, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Now, this is interesting. The last six kings in the history of Israel cover the last 30 years of the kingdom. Five of them were all murdered. Five of them were all murdered. Only one of them died in their bed. The other ones were killed. Um, one of them was taken into captivity eventually. Um, but God wanting to heal the backslider, they don't want it. They actually get into more sin. And uh, the sin that they committed, it's against God. The sin that they committed, it's against God. Even though they want, God wants to heal them, the leaders won't let them. They're like ovens, like a baker who stokes the fire. And they heat up the lust and the passion of the people like an oven. So you're, you're heated, your lust, passion, drunk, uh, drunkenness, wine. All that becomes a picture of how the people behave. They, they were hot like an oven to do what? Immorality, drunkenness, all kinds of behavior. You know, we even have a euphemism in our, in, in, in our society about being heated with lust. Whew, it's so hot in here, right? That kind of thing where it's, you become lustful, you become heated, passionate. And it wasn't the right passion. It was actually the leaven that was rising up in them. And who was allowing it? The king. Now, don't think of a king like a president or a prime minister. The king was supposed to have a relationship with God like David. He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. He was allowing this to happen. He didn't really care. It actually made him better. Why? Because he could actually enjoy the people. They didn't like Hosea that much because he reminded them what they were supposed to be doing. Um, but he lets the heat of the oven continue. Their adultery. What a mess. The nation was swallowed up in power. But look what it says in verse 7. None of them calls on me. None of them calls on me. God could have healed them. God could have fixed it up, but they continue. Look at verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. So you could imagine a pancake that you don't turn. You just let, let it sit on one side. And, um, you know, not, not saying that that's your cooking habit, but let's say it is. Uh, what happens to that pancake that you don't turn over? Well, on one side is... Burnt. On the other side, raw. What do you do with that? That's right. You see the picture, right? Guys who cook. Any guys here that cook? All right. Praise the Lord. Right? <laughs> uh, ladies that cook, right? This is a perfect picture. What is it? Is it a pancake? Not really. Is it a raw pancake? No, it's in a burnt pancake. Yeah, you see the point? That's what God is saying. He's giving us this. Per Israel doesn't know what it is. It's supposed to be a people of God. It's supposed to be a people to light to the nations. But they've actually mixed themselves with the nations, it says. And they've actually became a freak. The nations will look at them and go, what are you doing? You Aren't you people of God? Aren't you the people of the Sabbath? Aren't you the people that worship Yahweh, the invisible God? Why do you have all these idols? You're just like us. You just have like, 
who are you? <laughs> the nations actually, the Bible says, stumbled over the fact that they saw Israel that way. And they didn't worship God because they said, well, if that's the people of God, what's the point? We have our gods in our temples. These people are supposed to be different. They're the gods of the, the, the people of the invisible God, but they have idols, so it must be okay. And God says, you cause people not to know me. Your sin has stumbled people, so they don't know me. What an indictment to the people of God. Well, what an indictment to the people of God today. How does the church live? How does Christians live? Do they live like the world? Do they behave like the world? So the world looks at it and goes, huh, what is that? You know, one of the things Islam looks at the church, and it looks at the broad church, and looks at the Catholic church, and says, oh, they're Christians, and they have idols. I don't want that. That's crazy. What do you mean? That's not even in the Bible. <laughs> and they looked at that, and they put the whole thing together, of course. They looked at the whole Christianity as a whole, and they said, idols, idolatry, what is that? They mix with the nations like a cake that's not turned. Not totally pagan, <laughs> but not totally committed to God. What is it? It's a rough place to be, isn't it? It's like a Christian who behaves like the world. What is he? He's supposed to be a Christian, but he behaves like the world. He's not the world, but he's not a Christian either. What is he? He's like a cake, burnt on one side and raw on the other side. That's what God's saying. Verse 9, the strangers devour his strength. What does that sound like? Ever heard of the strongest man that lived on the earth? Samson. Strangers devour his strength. What happened to Samson? Same thing, isn't it? Anointed by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, called to serve God, had all the gifting to be a great judge, but what was his weakness? Girls. Man. Anyway, it could be a sermon on, uh, for the guys, but, you, you know, be careful. Eventually, your eyes will cause your downfall. What happened to Samson at the end? They gouge his eyes out. That which he used to direct his ways and commit Sin against the Lord is what eventually he ended up blind. Uh, this is a perfect picture of Samson, just like, the, just like Israel. Anointed by God, empowered by the Spirit, gone. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. I'm sorry, verse 9. Yet he does not know it. Gray hair are sprinkled on it, and yet he does not know it. This is a fascinating picture. It's like a man who thinks he has jet black hair and doesn't know that he has gray hair. Doesn't know he's getting older. He, no offense to the guys who have gray hair, but it's like, I'm still young, I'm still good looking, but he looks in the mirror and has all these hair, not, not that white hair you know, makes you not good looking, but it's a man who doesn't know who he is. I'm still young, look at me. And he's got all this gray hair and he doesn't realize he's gotten old. He doesn't realize he is not what he used to be. And this is the problem of Israel. They thought that they were doing good because as long as they worshiped God, no matter what they did, they were still okay. They were doing the sacrifices. In fact, we're going to get into chapter 8 in a little bit. They worshiped the golden calf the same way they would worship God. So the worship of God was transferred to the golden calves. They had actually called the golden calves Yahweh. That's the ultimate syncretism, right? The ultimate mixture, calling your idol God and saying, I'm doing, I'm doing what God says. 
I'm sacrificing to Yahweh. Why'd you have two golden calves? Well, those are my gods. How can you go so far out? How can you go? How can you be completely convinced that that's God when it was man-made? We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, they should have known that they gotten old. But see, but like any backslider, pride. Pride. I'm not getting old. What are you talking about? That's perfectly jet black hair. No, man. You're getting a lot of gray. No, 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 no. I'm all right. I'm okay. Talk to any backslider. Talk to people that were in the church and walked away from the Lord and try to talk to them. Unless the Holy Spirit is convicting them, they would agree, yes, I need to get back to Jesus. But most of the time it's like, no, man, I'm all right. Just, just, I'm, I'm good. It's like a man who thinks he's young and he's got gray hairs. Is exactly what the, you know, these are perfect pictures that God paints. Verse 10, though the pride of Israel testifies against them, they have there, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor they have sought him for all of this. They still, see, God wanted to heal them back. Look at verse 1, that I would heal Israel. Still there, and God wanted to heal them. No matter how far they went, God still wanted to heal them, but there's a limit. And this is where backsliders do not understand. There is a limit to the patience of God. There is a limit to how far you can go before God says, okay, you want it that way? You can have your pancake. You can have your raw pancake and burnt on the other side. You can have your immorality. You can have your idolatry. You can continue in that path. I'll stop calling because that's what you want. And in the book of Romans, Paul says that God was like a father who went out every morning and with outstretched arms, he called out to a stubborn people and they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. And you know, if you have children who've walked away from the Lord, that's how you feel. With an outstretched arm, you call out to them, you call out to them, and they don't come because they're stubborn. And it breaks your heart. And this is the passion of God. Why is God using some of these this interesting similarities, analogies, euphemisms, metaphors is because he's trying to, like a poet, trying to paint the picture, trying to give us more than just one side, not just directly saying it like a prose. This is not like a doctrinal statement. It's poetic. It's, it's, it's to give you the passion of God. Verse 11, so Ephraim became like a silly dove, like a silly dove without sense. You ever seen a bird that gets into like a, a big building? We've had birds here before. Not anymore. And they just, they get scared. And they run from one end to the other. Especially if they're glass windows, they hit the window pane and they go back. And they, imagine Israel like that. Why? What were they doing? Well, they were going to Egypt and they were going to Assyria. And they were going back to Egypt and back to Assyria for help. And they were the two dominant powers in the days of Israel. And they couldn't decide where to go. But where they should have gone was to the Lord. But it says in verse 10, they didn't return to the Lord. They didn't seek after him. Like a silly dove, they call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Who are you gonna, who's going to help you? Who are you going to call? <laughs> Not Ghostbusters, but yeah, they're going to call. They didn't call on the Lord. Now, think of a backslider. Maybe in your own life, maybe in my own life. It was a time of unbelievable confusion. I don't know if you remember. I certainly remember. Am I backsliding? It was confusion. What do I do? What am I doing? 
until you, you know, like the prodigal son, until sense, you come to your senses and you go, I got to go back to the Lord. I got to go back to Jesus. But a backslider with pride, it says, I'm all right. Nothing's burning. Nothing's raw. Full jet black hair. <laughs> you like that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I then I will go and spread my net over them. I will bring them down like a bird of the sky. I will chastise them in the accordance with the proclamation of their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me, says the Lord. Destruction is there, for they have rebelled against me. I would have redeemed them, but they speak lies against me. What can they possibly say about the Lord? Think of a backslider. Think of you, maybe your own backsliding. I'm not, I'm not saying you have, I'm just saying. Maybe some of us here have. Um, I'm not show of hands, but maybe you have. What did you think of the Lord? Did you speak lies against the Lord during that time? Probably did. Ah, oh, God doesn't care. He's all right with me. He's all right with me smoking this. He's all right with me drinking this. He's all right with me living with this girl. He's all right with it. Lies. Or we say, oh, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care. God does. He wanted to redeem them. But they speak lies against him. They speak lies against him. So much so, this is how much rebellion it costs your relationship with the Lord. Lies against the Lord. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from their heart. I mean, they're still doing their sacrifices. They're still, we would say in our vernacular, they still go to church. They still do the thing. They still do the giving. They still get the standing up. They still do the songs. They still do the thing. And then they, they go home. And yet they don't cry out from their hearts. When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and the new wine, they assemble themselves. Ah, when they need something, oh, they begin to cry out. Man, isn't this a little convicting, isn't it? Because maybe when we strayed from the Lord, only when it was, only when it got tough, that rent wasn't, rent's due and that money wasn't there. I gotta get back. <laughs> Sound like your kids? <laughs> um, it sounds like us. Only when things get bad, we call out to God. For the sake of the grain, the new, they, they assemble. Now that they assemble, okay, now, now we got to get back with God. They turn away from me, though. Although I trained them and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. This is the picture. It's like Israel's a child, and the dad is there. It's God, and he's training his child how to shoot an arrow and a bow. That's the idea. And in order for you to shoot an arrow... A bow and arrow, you have to have some strength in your arm. So imagine a little kid who's like trying to, and he can't really put it straight, and the father comes around them. I've done this. And they, okay, here you go, and you shoot. That's it. And eventually, the child becomes stronger, and they, they're getting the target, hitting the target, and then they shoot the dad. <laughs> That's what they did. That's the picture here. They device evil against me. Now instead the target, the target is dad. And they shoot dad. And that's what they did. God brought them out, strengthened them, encouraged them. And when it was time to worship God on their own and just brought them out of Sinai into the wilderness and the promised land, they turn around and they blaspheme God and they shoot God. That's the picture there. And um, as painful as it is, maybe in your own family, this happened. When your children turn against you, it was one of those painful things that could happen. They turn, but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword. 
because of their insolence of their tongue, and they will be their it, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They're going back to Egypt. Not really, though. Not, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, they are. Remember that song, great song by Keith Green? So you want to go back to Egypt. Any of you heard that song? Keith Green wrote it a long time ago. Okay. It's a great song. So do you, do you want to go back to Egypt? Uh, I think it's in the same album as Sleeping in the Light. Sleep in the Light. Um, great song. So you want to go back to Egypt. You can find it tonight. Uh, basically, said, okay, Christians, do you want to go back there? Do you want to go back where you came from? That's what God's saying. You'll eventually end up there. As a backslider, if you want to live like in Egypt, you'll eventually end up in Egypt. In Israel, you want to live like that? You'll go back there. Now, how, is, how are they going to go back there? It's where chapter 1 of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 8 begins. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. A serious coming. They don't know it, but they're coming. And if you've ever been into, like, maybe hunting or the wilderness, and you've ever seen a big vulture, has anyone seen a big vulture when they go out hunting? Or an eagle? I mean, they look tiny way up there. And you go, oh, look at that little bird. How cute. And it starts coming, and it starts coming, and all of a sudden that thing is there, and it is huge. That's the idea here. Nothing's wrong. Who cares? We have alliances. We made a deal with them. And here comes the bird. And the bird of prey, the, the word is eagle, but it's, it's actually the word uh, like a vulture, like a bird of prey. They have come. And remember, they went to Assyria for this. <laughs> they went to the king and said, look, we got to make a deal. You know, we'll give you some money. You protect us. They did the same thing to Egypt. They're hedging their bets, right? You know, when you hedge your bets, you, you bet on both sides. <laughs> Someone's going to win. And they thought Egypt was going to win. They thought Assyria was going to win. Well, at one point, they thought Assyria was stronger. And they were right. But they didn't count on this. They didn't count that the same vulture that they were making a deal with was the vulture that was going to come and eat them. Right? They was going to come and eat them. They were the prey. And they were, they were the prey. Assyria was the predator. They cry out to me. My God, we of Israel know you. Okay, so now they're in trouble again. And it could be at this point that they began to hear the threats of Assyria. So it's a very interesting point in the, in the passage of Scripture, a passage of Hosea. They might have been seeing the threats of Assyria. And they were wondering, wait a minute, what's going on here? We better call out to the Lord. And they say, they cry out to God, we Israel know you. And we... We have exhausted here the word no, because we, we talked about it at length. The word no in Hebrew, ya'ad, does not mean just this. It means a fellowship and a relationship with God. They, they're saying, we know you, but they were knowing the Lord intimately. It's like knowing your wife, right? People know your wife. Like, people know my wife. People know it. But the, I... But, you're the only one that knows your wife in an intimate way, in a fellowship way, in a sexual union way, right? That's the reality of knowing. They knew the Lord, but were they in fellowship with God? No. They had other gods. They cry out to God, though. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. And that's the idea here of the covenant. 
They had a covenant with God. They rejected it, though. They have transgressed the covenant, and they rebelled against the Lord. In fact, the idea of covenant comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Hosea is like a, a reminder of Deuteronomy. If you read Deuteronomy, one of the most important books in the Bible, in my opinion, uh, it talks about how they, if they were to keep the covenant and be faithful to the covenant, God was going to bless them infinitum. Tremendous blessing. If they were unfaithful, curses will come. And it was, it was hinging on this. But before he gives them the blessings and curses, he says, Deuteronomy 18 talks about the prophet like Moses coming and that they were going to have a king. One king, says in Deuteronomy. They're supposed to have a king. And the king was supposed to be the Lord. But if they are not faithful to the covenant, they will be destroyed. Well, think of the church in the same way. They, we have a covenant that we're benefiting of. It's called the new covenant. Made with the Jews, but the church benefits from it. Are we supposed to be faithful to the covenant? Yes, very much so. And is it a greater covenant than the old covenant? Yes, it is. It's a greater covenant than the old covenant. So if the people that transgress against Moses, their punishment was severe, wasn't it? How much more when you trampled over the new covenant that's made with the blood of Jesus? See, the effects are even greater. The effects are even more intense. And so it's a good reminder as the church of Jesus Christ that we look at this very carefully and to say, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? Because it says that these were the people of God. Well, I'm a people of God, I would say. And um, have we transgressed the covenant? Um, now, the new covenant has different features, of course, in the old covenant, but it is maintained the same way. Faith and repentance, faithfulness in the covenant. Faith and repentance gets you in. Faithfulness, while in it, you have to stay in it. You have to continue it by faith, faithfulness. Israel has rejected the good, it says. They had such self-determination that they were going to completely rely on their kings. They're going to completely rely on their worship. And they're going to completely rely on their alliances with other nations. And nothing was going to happen to them if they just kept those things. We have kings. Well, let's see what happens to their kings. Well, six kings in 30 years. Well, yeah, but uh, at one, any point, we're going to have the right king. I know these guys have been killed left and right, but we're going to have the right king soon. That's what they said. And none of them were good. Not one of them were good. Um, they had alliances. They went to Assyria. They went to Egypt. They had the right worship, they thought. This was their worship. In their marriage ceremony, they actually were worshiping the calf. Now, there's still a religion that worships calf, by the way. I don't know if you know it. The Hinduism still worships calves. Yeah. God is sacred. Cow is sacred. still there. And... Um, of course, in ecumenism and interfaith, they say it's the same thing. They're doing exactly the same thing. So churches that go into interfaith and ecumenism, they're doing the same thing. They're saying, well, yeah, that's God. I don't have to call it that, but uh, that's God. It's God for them, but 
you know, if, if we just lay down our doctrinal differences, that's God too. Golden calf. Now, it says, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings. But not by me. They have set up kings, but not by me. They've appointed princes, but I didn't know them. Now, this is interesting because the upper kingdom had no real kingship. The true kingship was the line of David. They had the line of Jeroboam, which was one of the generals, but was not the king. So that's what they had set up their kings. Jeroboam first, Jeroboam the second, all these, you know, all these other kings. Not one of them was appointed by God. The true kingdom, the true king was in Jerusalem, the line of David. Israel rejected it. They thought they were safe. God says, I don't know your kings. I don't know who they are. I didn't appoint them. With their silver and their gold, they've made idols of themselves that they may, idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. And he has rejected your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be, uh, how long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craft man made it. So it's not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken in pieces. Remember Jeroboam said, look, I'm going to make uh, two gods. One's going to be in the south, Bethel. One's going to be in the north, Dan. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Wherever you live, the calf will be closer to you than Jerusalem. And wanted to encircle the people of God and say, no, you don't have to go. Now, the faithful people did go. And before the kingdom was destroyed, the northern kingdom, the people that were faithful to God did make it down to the south. We're told that in the book of Chronicles and Kings. But it's interesting that, humanly speaking, they were setting themselves up for a judgment, but they didn't even think about it. They just thought they had protection. And the human conscious cannot even imagine judgment. This is interesting. Uh, there have been studies done by people that worked in like, hospitals, nurses, uh, that work in the oncology department, oncology cancer, right? And they've asked nurses that work there, do you think you will ever, these are surveys, right? Do you think you'll ever get cancer? Guess what do you think the most of the answers are? No. And they asked them later, well, why, do you, why did you say that? Because you work with people that get cancer all the time. What makes you so different? I just can't imagine me getting it. I just don't think about it. I just, anybody but me, right? That's the human conscience, right? They think of those things in, in, in those terms. I, I cannot possibly get cancer. But wait a minute, you work with people that get cancer all the time. What makes you so different? I just don't know. <laughs> Now, they've asked people this. Now, take the same example. Take them at church. They've asked people if they know somebody that um, is going to hell. And the answer is, yeah. I know people that are going to hell. And um, could it ever be possible that it would be you? Overwhelmingly, the answer is never. But people do go to hell. But not me. Why not? Now, we're talking about in a broad spectrum of church. I'm not talking about individuals who've been born again and things. I'm not, I'm not referring to that. But even then, it applies. We cannot possibly think it'll be us. Even though I know people that have stood in pulpits and now today have fallen away into immorality, living in idolatry and sexual morality, it can't be me. It can never be me. That's the way we think. It, me? Nah, come on. I'm better than that. I'm better than that. How can you say that? Now, the Bible says no idolater, fornicator, adulterer, drunker, 
will ever enter the kingdom of God. They will not have, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you into that. Those who do such things, practice such things, live in it, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what happens if somebody does this while professing and confessing faith? What's their end? Oh, it's okay, he's a Christian! You know what Paul says about that? Paul says, you condemn people that do that. Romans 2. You say, this is not to be done. Don't commit adultery. Don't fornicate. Don't, idol don't be an idolater. But do you do those things? That's what Paul says in Romans 2. You say to those people, hey, that's wrong. But do you do those things? And Paul's point is this. God's fair. God is not going to look at your sin and go, oh, he's all right. But that guy, ooh, yeah, we're going to get him. God doesn't work like that. You've made it that way. You might have superimposed that idea on God. But the Bible said God is a fair God. He doesn't tolerate sin from us or from the world. And he's not going to say, you guys can do it, but they can't. God is fair. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, the Bible says? What's going to happen to a church that embraces those things and says, it's okay. We are Christians. God is okay with our sin like that, even though those guys are bad and they shouldn't do it. We're okay. Oh, that is what Israel did. They never thought it would come to them. Why? Hey, we're good. We're people of God. We can do it. The Canaanites can. How in the world can that happen? You know what that is? It's elitism. Elitism in the church. We're Christians. We can do whatever we want. We're above the word of God. I know the Bible says I shouldn't do that, but I'm a Christian. I could do it. How did you get that? How can you? Because somebody told them. Because somebody in a pulpit told them that. They didn't quote a Bible. They quoted some guy. But they didn't get it from the Bible. Elitism. Don't we think God's going to care? That if I sin, it's arrogance and lawlessness that plagues the church. Arrogance and lawlessness. It's a dangerous thing to have in your life. It's a if you're a Christian, you have arrogance, look out. Look out. If your elitism says, I can sin and God is okay, but man, those guys can't because I'm a Christian, I can do it. And then you add in the lawlessness part. That, hey, I don't have to do anything. I'm just, you know, saved by grace. Saved by grace, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what does the verse say? We're going to quote the Bible. Let's quote it right. We're saved by grace through faith, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? The Bible does not say we're saved by grace. It says we're saved by grace through faith. Don't let anybody quote the verse halfway. They quote the verse halfway. There's something else at work. We're saved by grace through faithfulness, we can say. Because it's the same word, pisteo. Saved by grace through faithfulness. We're saved because he died for our sins, 
pay the penalty for our sins, sets us on a new walk with Jesus, and now he says, work it out. Follow me. Faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. This is dangerous for backsliders because they think that way. You ever met somebody that thought that way? They're on their way into this backsliding process. They set up kings. They set up calves. Look what verse 8 says. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. For they sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. They standing in the grain has no head. It yields no grain. Should it yield, even the strangers will come and swallow it up. What does that mean? We have this, we have this verse in our, in our English language. You sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. What does that mean? It literally means, in our English vernacular, that if you continue in those actions, you're going to get more than what you bargained for. You think it's going to be a little thing that you do, but it's going to become a nightmare. And boy, is it true. Those things that you thought were no big deal are going to come back and destroy your life. It'll be worse than what you thought possible. You might think it's small, but you're going to get empty fields, a terrible harvest. And if there is any grain, someone's going to come in and take them. You are going to lose. There is no winning in backsliding at all whatsoever. Nobody has ever come back to me after they backslid and said, man, I just had the greatest time away from Christ. Ah, oh, it was awesome. Can't wait to do it again. Not one person ever. And there'll never be anybody like that. Guarantee you. The way of the backslider, the proverb says, is hard. The way of the sinner is hard, it says. It's hard. Anybody? <laughs> it's hard. I don't ever want to go back there. It's like an arid land. <laughs> it's like a, well, let's keep going because it says, they have gone up to Assyria and like a wild donkey. So they went back to the two main, the two main strong powers, Assyria and Egypt. They have been swallowed up by the nations. I'm sorry, verse 8. They swallowed up. They're now among the nations like a vessel which no one delights. You circle that very quickly, and I'll come back to that one because it's the answer to the next few verses. They've gone to the nations like a vessel. Nobody delights in them. They've gone up to Assyria like a donkey. All alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hired allies among the nations, they will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. What does it mean? Cut out a couple of pictures here. Number one, hired lovers. Prostitution. They prostituted themselves. They hired Egypt and Assyria and sort of made this deal. And they paid them. You know, who, who can give me more protection? <laughs> you know, it's almost like a, you can imagine like a gangster movie, like a racketeer, you know, racketeering or things like that. You just, you're paying off for protection here. Who's going to protect me? Even though they're higher allies among the nations, they'll gather them up and they'll begin to diminish. It says a wild donkey. A wild donkey. A donkey that doesn't know where to go. Just, just frantically running around. No harvest. Like an empty field. And verse 8 says, like a vessel, like a pot that nobody wants. Israel became this thing that was going to the nations. Can you protect me? Can you protect me? Can you protect me? And the nations, yeah, I'll protect you for a little bit. And then I'll come back. Can you protect me some more? Can you protect me some more? And eventually the nations got fed up and said, forget Israel. I don't even want you anymore. Just get rid of them and attack them and just destroy them. And they became like an unwanted pot, 
unwanted vessel. Nobody wanted to deal with them. And it says they'll waste away by the king of princes. Who's that? The Assyrians. Assyrians are going to come in. And no one's going to care for them because the people that they paid to be protected by are going to be the ones who are going to come and destroy them. So what they thought was going to protect them was eventually going to be their downfall. So it's the silliest thing. What you think is protecting you today, what you think you're trusting the most, is going to be your downfall. That's the downfall of every backslider. Whatever you hold on to the most, it'll eventually cost the most. Ultimately, they'll bring the judgment of God. But they have the right religion, right? Verse 11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they become altars made it, so it's not God. How can you say that's God if somebody had to make it? But millions of people today will say that's God. Well, that's my conduit to God. That's my way to worship God. Hey, man, somebody made it. It's not God, okay? That's very simple. This is the conversation we had a long time ago. Even within my own family. It's not God. It can't be God. It's, it's deception. It's demonic. It's man-made. But yet people think it's God. People will swear this is God. We're worshiping God. So did the Israelites. So did the Israelites. They had true religion. The Canaanite religion, though. <laughs> but it was their religion. And they called it God. They called it Yahweh. Why do they do this? Why do they do this? Well, it says, verse 12, though I wrote to him 10,000 precepts of my law, they regarded it as a strange thing. Though God told them in his word, they said, what? Did God say that? Really? As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrificed the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sin. Now, I said, that which you were worshiping is going to cause your judgment. That what you think was God was actually going to lead into judgment because Deuteronomy says that they did this, but God was going to bring judgment to them. But how can they be so blinded? God wrote it in his word. It says it. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied and fortified cities. I'm sorry, I skipped them. Now they'll remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. They will return to Egypt. So when they were taken out of Pharaoh's domain into God's domain, book of Exodus, powerful, amazing, they're going to go back. They're going back. Peter says, the state of somebody that knows the Lord and they fall into grievous sins and they lost the way, that their state is worst than when they first came. They will go back to their vomit, literally says. Their condition is worse if they known and go back than if they ever known at all. How can somebody do this? But I've seen it. I've seen it. I, I've talked to people in my office. Nope, everything's good. It's fine. But the Bible says you can't do that. No, brother, you don't understand. I'm free in the spirit to do whatever I want. God says it's okay. Well, some spirit told you that, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you wouldn't be living in this unholy way. But they don't care. Where do they go back? Egypt. Syncretism. They'll return to Egypt. Verse 14. They have defenses, though. 
Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. They built palaces in four to five cities. Even Judah did it. And I will send fire on those cities. They might consume those dwelling. The psalmist said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we're going to trust the Lord. The psalmist also told us that the Lord is our fortress, our high tower, our place of refuge. There's nothing wrong with fortresses. There's nothing wrong with fortified cities. Nothing wrong with any of those things. What's wrong with them? When you trust them. When you trust them. That's the problem with them. God doesn't say, don't build fortresses, don't build fortified cities. What are you, crazy? No, he says, it's good to do that. First King said, Paul David said it. But when they began to trust it, that's when God said, don't trust it. Why? Because people are going to trust in anything and everything except God. And trusting them and relying on them, it's not going to happen. Judah built 46 fortified cities. 46. This is a cylinder of Sennacherib. Sennacherib Road, the history of Sennacherib. You know the guy that we found the palace? I didn't, but the, the archaeologists did. They found a palace, Sennacherib. This is in uh, Second Kings, um, that he came. And he destroyed Lachish, it was a city, a very strong city. And in one campaign, he destroyed all 46 of the 45 cities. He destroyed Lachish. And he spends 80, 8 by 80 space. This is, goes on and on of Sennacherib. 80 by eight, 8 by 80 feet of space of writing about how he was such a wonderful king. And he destroyed uh, Judah and Israel and all this stuff and took Lachish but he never mentions Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a fortified city. What happened when Sennacherib got to Jerusalem? How was Jerusalem spared? If all the other fortified cities were destroyed, does anyone know the story? It was not saved by fortress. It was saved by a... Remember, Scotty? That's right. How did the angel come? There was a praying man named Hezekiah. There was a man who prayed and bowed before the Lord and said, Lord, if you don't help us, nobody will. He repented, and one night, like Scott said, one angel called, uh, came and killed 187,000 Assyrians, and they went with their tail between their legs back to Assyria. By the way, Sennacherib never wrote about it because those ancient kings never wanted you to know that they lost, and God whipped them. But he destroyed Israel. He destroyed, he wiped out that northern kingdom. What kept Jerusalem? A praying man. One man that prayed and got the nation to pray. That's how you do it. That's how you get back to the Lord. Why? Because our hope is not in anything but the Lord. The psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the heavens, to the hills. Where does my help come from? Question mark. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If you have a backsliding heart today, this applies. Nothing will shield your backsliding. Nothing. Nothing will shield your backsliding. Nothing will shield your, the consequences of your backsliding. Nothing. The only thing you could do is come back to the Lord. Now, people do this all the time. When they begin to backslide, they begin to wander away from the Lord. They begin to think, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? I feel dry. I feel wandering away. I know. I'll attend a church. And they go. But that won't solve it. I know. I will give. 
to the church. I will do it. I know I'll get involved in the church. I'll serve in the church. And another way they do it, and this is interesting, they build up their theology. I'm going to become an academic theologian. And they build all these fortresses, right? Service, giving, attending, theology. They build all these fortresses to cure their backsliding. And what they find out is they're still backsliding because there's nothing that's going to take it away except faith and repentance, coming back to Jesus and being right with him, just like Hezekiah. All the fortresses in the world couldn't keep Sennacherib away from the destruction of the fortified cities. Only prayer, only coming back to the Lord, only Hezekiah spreading himself on the floor saying, Lord, if you don't come through, we're done. <laughs> totally trusting in him, totally relying on him. But the way of the backslider, it's hard. The way of the sinner, it's hard. And so we learned so much from Israel so that we won't repeat the same things. And if you've been cold toward God, it says here God wants to heal that. It says, I want to heal them. I want to heal Israel. I want to heal you. I want to heal your backsliding. And he does. And he will. But he wants you back. He wanted Israel back. Not everybody made him. The only thing you could do today is return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you will welcome back anybody that has fallen into this despair because you welcomed us back. And night after day and night after night and day after day, you stand with your arms out and you call people to come back to you. A rebellious people. And Lord, I see the same rebellion within the people of the new covenant. Lord, I pray you have mercy and you have grace on those who backslide and help them to return, Lord, that their pride and arrogance will not grab a hold of their heart, Lord. Lord, I fear that the longer they stay in that state, the harder their heart becomes. Please, Lord, Help us to do all we can not to fall into that temptation of being away from you. And as Paul and James and John told us, that if we see a brother in sin, to do all that we can to win them back with fear, with trembling, with reverence. So Lord, we come before you and Asking you to forgive us, Lord, if we've been cold or hardened. Heal us, Lord. Renew our strength. And for my brothers and my sisters as well. In Jesus' name, amen.